What can we learn from contemporary education models that treat students as partners? Professor Gary Wood from MMIT leads the delivery of challenge-led industry-linked programmes which are creating new types of engineers. He proclaims that student engagement is unintentionally passive and chiefly focuses on hygiene factors. Consequently, he endorses an advanced model of engagement and offers a website of resources to help you better enshrine the student voice. Welcome to the European Engineering Educators podcast by CEFI, the European Society for Engineering Education. We're a non-profit international organisation active since 1973 and the largest European network of engineering educators. Our mission is to develop and improve engineering education and strengthen its image in society. So Neil, I'm really interested in learning from the discussion today. Um, I feel like words like student voice and student co-creation are being used more and more, especially since, you know, I was a student myself. It didn't yeah. feel like we necessarily had had much say in, in what we did. Mm. Um, but really, I only I only feel like I've been involved in it, you know, in, a, in quite a minor way so far, you know, through informal feedback and maybe a few focus groups with students. But I do feel like I'd like to sort of do more of that and engage um more with with students on how they see their own learning what about you have you done any of these types of things yes i mean i I mean i've tried to involve students in initiatives in the past and you know running focus groups for example and but but they really tend to be exceptions to the norm they're fairly expensive activities i'm intrigued today to understand kind of what tangible benefits there are to these deeper partnerships that justify this greater effort and how sustainable it can be Hi, Gary. Hi, Natalie. Hi, thanks for joining us. So, Professor Gary Wood is a National Teaching Fellow, Senior Fellow of the Higher Education Academy and a specialist in learning, teaching and assessment. He is currently Academic Director of MMITE, leading delivery and development of new approaches to engineering education through a challenge-led, industry-linked programme. He also contributes to regional skills development, drawing on his expertise in employability, professional skills and entrepreneurship education. So Gary, it seems like you've dedicated the majority of your career to the development of professional skills. How do you get into this and, and why do you sort of see it as so important as to, to carry on working in this field? Well, as you said in, in that bio there, I started my career teaching linguistics. And I think that one of the things about linguistics in contrast to engineering education is that it's not directly vocational. So our students were going in lots of different directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I saw it as being really important to make sure that not only were we giving them uh, good skills in in their discipline in linguistics, but that we were equipping them with the transferable skills that would make them really employable after they left the program. Um, And then after I left teaching linguistics, I spent some time delivering enterprise education and developing enterprise education. um, And and that happened to be in the context of engineering. So that was really where I had that transition to working with engineers. Mm. Uh, You know, I think what what I've seen over the years is the value that this adds for, for students when they when they get to the point of transitioning out into the world of work. Hello, Gary. Hi, Neil. Right, so you're the academic director at NMITE, which stands for New Model Institute for Technology and Engineering. And it's a university based in the southwest of the UK that opened in 2021. And from its website, it boldly claims to be the future of engineering and is delivering a totally new way of learning that disrupts higher education. Gary, these are some eye-catching and potentially contentious claims. Can you tell us a bit about MMIT, 
why it's so different to existing models of engineering education that most of us are practicing and how you're developing on this ambition. Sure. Um, so, um, I mean, it's kind of because of those differences that I was attracted to move from a more traditional institution into NMITE. Um, I think, you know, over the years of working in a more traditional context, I'd seen the value of having students work on real projects and and really be able to test and develop their knowledge and skills yeah. through um, doing the kinds of projects that practicing engineers would do. Mm. Um, and, and that's really at the heart of the NMITE approach is that we bring our students in and in every module of the degree program that they do, they work on a real project. Uh. So as they're learning everything throughout the program, and they're seeing immediately an application for that, they're learning through that context, and it means they get a real sense of the value of, of, of what it is that they're learning. So t taking this challenge-based learning approach to its absolute extreme and making everything uh, focus of it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then I think there's a few other things that make us different. So it's obviously quite common in the UK to be recruiting into degree programs in engineering on the basis of A-levels in, in subjects like maths and physics. Yeah, maths and um, physics, yeah. We don't stipulate those uh, those specific subjects. Okay. One of our routes in is through having A-levels, but we don't um, specify what subjects we want those um, A-levels to be in. And so yeah. in terms of the sort of widening participation agenda, we really needed to think more broadly than that. And we think, you know, we talk about engineering being creative. And so we, we, you know, we saw opportunity to say, well, let's bring some creative people in from more creative backgrounds and yeah. work with, with people who have come in from a more technical route. And, and together, you know, we can train engineers who have different perspectives, are able to look at things a bit more holistically, perhaps, uh, than someone who's just gone through a straight kind of maths and physics routine. So you have challenge-based learning. You also have this accelerated learning program. The degrees are done in a shorter time frame. That's right. So we, um, a traditional MEng in the UK would be four years. Yeah. Um, we we deliver the MEng in just three years uh, <laughs> right. because we deliver it over a, an accelerated year. So most universities would have a, a fairly long summer break yeah. um, of you know three or four months. We don't do that. We have our students. Uh, they still have a summer break, but it's shorter but also through the way that we structure the learning experience. Yeah. So again, it's typical to have two or three modules running in parallel in, in, a, in a more standard degree program. In the NMITE model, our students are totally absorbed in a particular module for four weeks, learning in a studio-based environment. So we don't use lectures. No. Uh, we have a, a studio base where we can do more hands-on practical learning. Again, it's all part of our approach to making sure that the, the graduates we're producing are work-ready because they're used to working in that sort of nine to five workplace model. Okay, so there's your disruption. Absolutely. So Gary, we increasingly sort of hear about the power of the student voice, um, which is sometimes linked with sort of the increasing view that students are customers of universities. Um, there's lots of other terms I can sort of think of that describe this, maybe, you know, student voice and the relationship we have with them. Um, you know, maybe students as partners, students co-creation student engagement is there a difference between these terms and and if so is the difference important to know about yeah so i think um you know student voice tends to be a term that we hear a lot and really trying to you know understand students perspectives on their learning journey uh, so that we can then uh, use that as information to help us guide changes to it or enhancements and and of course student voice then implies that students are telling us about their experience I think it's quite quite a passive approach. Um, you know, it's about it's it's students giving us uh, information that we then interpret and do something with. I think the difference in terms of talking about student partners is important, 
And I actually prefer that term students as partners because it implies a more active engagement on the part of the student in this process. I think one of the dangers of the kind of traditional student voice through a survey, for example, or through, through even through a focus group to a great extent, is that we hear what students are saying, but then there's an onus on us to interpret that and react to it. Um, I think there are lots of cases where students perhaps struggle to articulate in words what they what they what they mean or what their what their issues are that they're experiencing with a course or what their suggestions and recommendations might be. And if we shift towards a more active partnership, actually they have an opportunity not just to tell us but to show us and help us to shape the right kind of learning experience for them. Uh, and I think that that that's where we see real power in working with students that I don't think we ever quite get to if we just focus on student voice. Yeah, great. Okay, so you're considering students as partners, and and within that, there's sort of a dialogue, a back and forth, and communication, I guess, to to get to the deep understanding of of what students are are feeling and thinking. So, when did you first start working with students in this way, like as partners? Was there a specific need or something that triggered this type of activity? Uh, so it was when I was back in uh, the University of Sheffield, and uh, we really wanted to do some work around the fourth year of our Masters in Engineering programme, uh, which for lots of students is is separated from the third year of study by the fact that they've been on a year in industry. And so the starting point for that was we needed to understand what the perspectives of students coming back from a year in industry and trying to reintegrate into their studies might be like. And so we initially took a very traditional approach. We ran a focus group. And one of the things that we sort of took away from it was that we didn't quite feel like we'd got to the heart of what the students were trying to tell us. It felt like that we could almost feel as the students were talking to us that they were sort of grappling with trying to simultaneously reflect on their experience and then articulate that to us in a way that could be meaningful. Hmm. So to give you one example, um, they described a frustration at coming back into the university that there's lots of knowledge within the department that they that they'd like to access and and like to be able to talk to academics, for example, to get you know more knowledge on particular areas, and they see that they can do that in the workplace. They'd say to us, you know, in the workplace, if I know that there's someone in my team or even within the wider organisation that's doing something interesting, I can just talk to them, I can ask them about it, and I can learn from them. Mm-hmm. But their sense was, you know, we come back into the university and we have to stop doing that again because we can't do it in the university context. And I remember in that focus group sort of prompting them to, to kind of unpack that a bit and help us understand why they felt that was the case. And the conclusion that they arrived at was that it was because we're assessing them and that because we're assessing their work, they felt like they couldn't come and have those conversations with us. Mm. So coming off the back of that, we went and set up a more active session where we said to the students, um, you know, what we'd like you to do is think about what kind of module would be good at enhancing your experience of coming back into the university. What we saw in the design was that they'd put in a series of seminars that just involved people from in the department coming in and giving talks. And in the design, we couldn't see when we looked at it, what's the relationship between those talks and the assessment and the learning outcomes that they'd set up for the, for the module. Uh, and when we asked them about that, they said, well, you know, it's, we, we know that there's lots of people around the department that uh, that we we don't get to be taught by as we go through the degree program, but we'd love to know what they're doing in engineering. And it's just really inspiring to meet those people. And so as we started to sort of bring that back round, you know, I, I started to wonder if actually the, the, the point they'd made earlier about the fact that they couldn't talk to us because we were assessing them was actually more about them 
knowing there was expertise in the department, but not quite who had that expertise and who, mm-hmm. you know, who they could go and talk to. And when we put that to them, you know, that they started to articulate back to us that actually that probably was the problem. It wasn't that they, you know, that they, 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 we were assessing them and that they were worried about that, but just that they needed some mechanism of being able to find the expertise that they wanted to access. Yeah, no, it's a really nice demonstration of how you've gone from that sort of surface level finding to like the the deeper reasons behind it. Really, really. And I think that that's really common in in the experience I've had of doing this partnership work is that often the stimulus to go and do more in-depth work is something that you've got from a more superficial level. So, you know, surveys are great because you can get data from lots of students really rapidly. To me, I would only ever use those surveys to tell me where to shine a light to really probe into uh, you know, what can we do here to make to to enhance the student experience? Mm-hmm. Great. So, Gary, you've you've talked about breaking down these barriers. In your work in this area, you talk about using what's called an action research methodology to engage the students as partners. So could you describe what action research is and, and uh, what forms it takes in an engineering faculty? Sure. So um. I- Action research is really about, uh, you know, it's a, it's an approach to research. It's a methodology that we take from social sciences right. that's really about trying to bring about some change and research that process whilst we're actually taking some action. So uh, we might be, for example, trying to improve an area of student experience. Uh, mm. We might be trying to design a new course. And um, we are researching the process of doing that at the same time as doing it. So we want to research students' experiences um, and we do that at the same time as trying to solve the problem. So the two things are kind of happening interwoven, if that makes sense. So how would you go about researching experience then? What what kind of techniques do we use to research student experience um, in this in this, uh, um, so I think there's there's a wide range of, of, of different approaches that you can take. I mean, I, I described in my uh, comments there to Natalie, this approach that we'd taken of having students actually design a module. Yeah. Uh, I done other work when we moved on to trying to um, rewrite the curriculum and redesign the curriculum. We had students join our, our design team. So we had obviously academics from the department. I was there as a, as a curriculum and educational developer. Um, at the table, but we also had students there as well as equal partners in that design process. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about that is I, you know, when I've talked to people about this, I often get pushback from people who say, well, you know, what, what can really be the value of having students at a table where you're trying to design a curriculum? Because, you know, what do they know about that? You know, they're supposed to be learning the curriculum. What do they know about how to design it? Yeah. And, you know, of course that's a valid criticism. We don't, but I don't expect our students coming to the table to be experts in curriculum design. But what they are experts in is studying in our universities. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that we don't have that experience firsthand. We can observe our students, but we don't know what it's like to be at their level of study and to be using technologies that we might not have uh, not even have existed when we were studying. And so they they bring a different set of expertise to the table that we don't have within the design team if we've just working with academics. And, the, you know, the power in that then is bringing those different uh, expertises together so that we can, uh, you know, not miss something, uh, not overlook something and, 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 you know, really design solutions that work effectively. And how do you find your colleagues' um, uh, reactions to, to, to doing this kind of action research? I can imagine that most people have quite a rigorous approach to doing research in their fields. Um, it seems to me that this is this rigor is slightly different. 
Sure. I mean, I think there's different levels to that, isn't there? I think that, that on one hand, you know, we, we have had pushback from, as I say, from some academics who yeah. say, what value can students really have here? And what's the value of us having these conversations? And I think, you know, I, I would suggest to anybody who's going to try this approach um, that, you know, you need to think about who you have around the table at the beginning. So if you've got really sceptical academics, yeah. <laughs> they're probably not the people that you want at that table initially, no. because you have to actually really see the value in what the students have to offer, or else if you come to the table thinking it won't have any value, then it won't have any value, right? It becomes self-fulfilling. You know, too often, traditional student voice and surveys and things is a box ticking exercise. You know, people yeah. think that they should be consulting the students, they should be getting feedback from students, yeah. and so they do that. And then they choose to interpret that in a way that allows them to carry on and do the things that they wanted to do anyway, or the thing that they think is the right <laughs> thing to do. Yeah. Um, and actually, these more active methodologies are, are helpful because they guard against that. They they really mean that, you, you know, a good student partnership means that if you start to do that and you misinterpret what students are saying to you is that they'll push back and you'll find, you know, you'll find ways to navigate to solutions that that they're happy with and that you're happy with. So Gary, um, from the examples you've sort of explained so far, it sounds like you're suggesting that there is a place for sort of traditional surveys and they can be quite useful as a, a sort of starting point for us to try and work out where we can, you know, do some further investigation. But then that maybe we need to probe this a bit deeper, sort of understand the motivations of students and, and exactly what their experience is. Would you would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary, Natalie. I think that um, one of the... the um, uh, areas of the literature that we've sort of linked our work to as we've seen the impacts of doing this kind of work is two-factor theory. So um, there's, a, there's a kind of commonly if you're using surveys you know you'll see uh, Likert scales that go from kind of dissatisfied or very dissatisfied through to satisfied or very satisfied with something. And we the two-factor theory argues that actually satisfaction and dissatisfaction are not really opposite ends of the same continuum. But rather, there are kind of two continuums here that go from satisfaction to the absence of satisfaction and separately dissatisfaction to the absence of dissatisfaction. And often the kinds of things that we pick up through surveys tend to be uh, what the two factor theory calls hygiene factors. So uh, things that we can we could change and what they would do is reduce dissatisfaction, but they're not going to ever on their own lead to students being fully satisfied. So to make that more concrete, you know, we might hear uh, students are not satisfied with the feedback that they get in the course of their studies. And so we do things around trying to change that. It might be that they say it's not timely enough. So we need to make it get, get, get them to have feedback more quickly after they've done a piece of assessment. Mm. If we do that, then actually what we might do is reduce the dissatisfaction. But it's not necessarily going to lead to satisfaction. It reduces the dissatisfaction, but doesn't, it doesn't lead to them saying, I'm really satisfied now. Mm. Actually, what we've discovered through the work that we've done around feedback um, is that students' conception of what feedback means wasn't quite aligned with the academic staff's perception. So, you know, we thought that feedback meant uh, that they wanted good comments on their assignments with some uh, points that would help them look at what they could do differently in a future assessment that uses similar approaches, uh, that we would get that feedback to them quickly uh, so that they can, you know, the, the, the assessment that it's based on is still fresh in their minds. And we've seen that trying to fix those things, we've spent time trying to fix those things, reduces the level of dissatisfaction, but it doesn't mean that students suddenly say, I'm you know, really satisfied with this now. Um, and actually through the kind, kind of more uh, in-depth work we've done with students through the partnership approach, 
what we've really learned is that that they think of feedback not as something that comes after the fact where they you know it's kind of too late to do anything about that in terms of this piece of assessment it relates to Mm -hmm. um they think of feedback as being something that is part of the journey towards creating that output in the first place so they think of it more as being about kind of correcting course rather than somebody saying to you after you've done it well you know in these ways you didn't do that very well um and that sort of comes from their experience in a workplace where it's quite normal to talk to your line manager while you're working on a piece of work to talk to people around you and so ultimately then produce the best work that you can because you take account of that feedback as you go along yeah. rather than doing it in isolation and then having somebody say to you at the end well you know you could have done this better yeah yeah that's a really it seems like a really powerful uh, theory and, yeah. and sort of lens to use on this and i think it's you know when you start to understand you know that, that the motivator for students is that desire to be able to use the feedback as quickly as possible and to to not have to do badly to then learn how to do it better but to be able to correct course as they go along that's the thing that would be on the satisfaction continuum mm -hmm. not the timeliness of the feedback so you can fix the timeliness thing and you'll reduce the dissatisfaction but if what you want to do is enhance the satisfaction then you really need to understand what is it that's motivating students to highlight this as a problem in the first place and i don't think i've not seen surveys and traditional focus groups be a good way of getting to the heart of that whereas these more active student partnership working uh, approaches are really good at helping you get there so Gary, you've spoken a lot about sort of the benefits of really getting this deep understanding of, of student experience and the sort of changes that you can make because of that enhanced understanding. But what about the students? What do you think they get out of this experience? I think there's a number of things, um, you know, just, just from sort of hearing what they've said as we've gone through the process is that um, for those students who participate, it helps them to better understand the design of the courses that they're doing and some of the design decisions that have gone into them. And so, you know, why the learning experience is set up in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. um, it enables them to feel that they have some, uh, a different kind of ownership of their learning experience because they help to shape it and, and feel like it kind of goes beyond them just giving us feedback and relying on us interpreting it. They can actually help to shape it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really good opportunity for students in terms of you know, understanding professional behaviours. So, you know, they get to come uh, into meetings, uh, they get to engage with us in a in an equal way rather than through that kind of student-staff partnership that we'd have in, a, in terms of the teaching that we're delivering with them. Uh, and so they understand how to be in meetings, how to behave in that kind of context. Mm. They see how we manage that with kind of action logs and keeping notes of meetings in a, in a way that they, you know, they're just not familiar with from their kind of student group working context. So it gives them a, a different set of skills as well. Yeah, no, a range of, of different types of benefits, really. So um, quite often when I'm seeking feedback from students, you know, in, in focus groups or just informally, it's normally those who have sort of the most confidence to speak to me that, that seem to get the most, you know, time and, and voice, really. How, how do you think during this process you can ensure that you involve a sort of representative set of students yeah, I th I'm really glad you asked me that question, Natalie, because I think that's one of the things that we sort of learned and tested early in our, our approach here. Because, uh, of course, if you're doing something like a survey, uh, you can put that out to all the students. Um, but again, you still hit the problem of it being the most vocal students who will come back to you. So the ones who are really dissatisfied or the ones who are super happy will mm -hmm. be the ones who respond to it and you might miss the middle. And so uh, what we did was to um, actually get a list of all the potential students and then use a random selection tool to randomly select students out of that cohort. 
Um, and then we would write to them all individually by name. So rather than it being a blanket email that said, you know, dear student, we'd appreciate your help with this kind of thing. Uh, we would write to them by name and say that we, you know, we, we, we're, we're trying to do this piece of work. Uh, we really need some students to be part of that process. And so that we can get a representative sample, um, we have randomly selected you and we would really value it if you would help us with this and, and you know, come along and, and support us. But we found that really powerful because a lot of students then when you're when you're inviting them personally and you've explained why you're inviting them, they respond positively to that and they do come forward. You know, obviously that is a, a challenge in itself, but are there any other particular challenges that you've faced in this work? And do you have any advice to our listeners of how they could sort of manage these if they were to do this type of work themselves? So I think one one of the main challenges, and I think I've touched on this already, but to make it really explicit, is around making sure that everybody who's at the table understands why the students are there and what the value of having them at the table is, and that actually everybody is willing to listen to what the students have to say, to uh, to let the students, you know, demonstrate and have a view around uh, around the, the task that the task at hand. I think there are some academics who are more skeptical, and what you don't want is for them to be at the table and kind of derail the process. Um, I think the fact that you are then through that process, not uh, always getting students who are perhaps the most confident to have put themselves forward, you need to think about how you how you support them to genuinely have an equal voice at the table. So um, I would uh, get uh, you know a, a member of staff who was perhaps a bit less involved in leading the process to be available to the students outside the meetings as a kind of informal mentor, but just to help them have the confidence to know how a meeting would work uh, just really kind of helps them to feel empowered to be able to be an equal voice at the table. Yeah, I mean, I think some of these things we we totally overlook that they might have some trouble navigating that because maybe ourselves we've been, you know, used to doing that for a while. So I think some of those tips are, are really useful. Thank you. I think also, I mean, the final thing would be around time because, of course, these kinds of approaches take longer than just doing a survey. But what I would highlight is that if you do a survey, you can very easily fall into the trap of that, you know, you're dealing with hygiene factors rather than the real motivators for students. Um, and so you can end up stuck in this loop of doing a survey, making a minor change, seeing some a little bit of impact from that, but still not quite getting to where you want to go and you do another survey. And yeah. so every year you're kind of sort of, you know, chasing satisfaction and you never quite achieve it. Mm-hmm. So actually, if you think about it in those terms, yes, the process of doing a survey is quicker, but the process of getting to the endpoint solution is much longer because you never really get there. Whereas these um, kind of more involved processes take you longer to set up, but they're just more rewarding for everybody because actually what you find is you you can actually genuinely make change that has an impact and that, that you can see and measure the impact uh, and, you know, that enable you to drive the satisfaction that you seek. Thank you very much, Gary, for joining us. Um, to finish, what single piece of advice would you give to uh, our listeners who want to better involve students as partners? Oh, I think, well, I mean, I think that there's probably, I'm going to give you two answers here, if that's okay, <laughs> but they are linked. They are linked together. So I hope you'll right. forgive okay. me if there's if there's two things here. I think one is that there there isn't a massive collection of uh, resources out no. there already on these kind of approaches to student partnership there's an emerging literature on the value of it with some examples but there's not there's not a handbook on this for example yet because it's mm. too new an area um so i think my first piece of advice would be not to be scared of this and just go and have a go so think about the the kind of what's your stimulus so w- what was the challenge or the 
problem or the design opportunity that you've got that you want to work with students on. Um, and then from that, just think about an activity that you can do with students that will enable you to start working through understanding that challenge and get to some solutions uh, or, or some outcomes. So the kind of second piece of advice then it's kind of linked to that would be, you know, if you feel like you want some uh, examples or to explore the theory behind student partnership working a little bit more, uh, then I would encourage people to go and look at my website. Uh, so just garycwood.uk um, and the publications page there has my own work, but also uh, the references in that will signpost you to some other resources. Uh, perhaps in particular, uh, there's a, a guide to a student partnership working from um, the Higher Education Academy that's a bit of a literature review uh, and gives some examples of the ways in which students have been working with academics as partners uh, across the sector. Great, and we'll put those links in the podcast description. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. We really appreciate your time uh, to share this with us. Thanks, Gary. My, my pleasure. It's been, a, it's been good to have this conversation. So, Neil, I really feel like I've learned lots in, in that episode, lots, lots of examples. Um, what, what are your key takeaways, do you think? Um, we do need a deeper involvement with students. And I think, you know, it's easy to say more difficult to do. And I think what Gary did today is tell us why there is this uh, model. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think as well as like the sort of change in curriculum and need to develop different skills, also there's the, the change yeah. in, in the way students are perceiving the mm, world, I guess, absolutely. and what they want out of it. Um, and so I think we have to sort of engage with that and, and try and understand their points of view a bit more. And, and Gary's really offered some sort of quite strategic ways to do that and, and sort of frameworks to, to draw upon, which I think would, would certainly give me more confidence in sort of um, applying some of this. Okay, thanks for listening today. And thanks again to our guest, Professor Gary Wood. I'm Neil Cook. And I'm Natalie Wendt. Goodbye. Bye.